What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Last week we started studying through Romans chapter 8, which is one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible. And the main focus of Romans chapter 8 is how someone can be sanctified, how they are set apart from sin and set apart to God, and how you and I are sanctified is ultimately through a complete reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit as opposed to relying upon our own power and strength. At the beginning of chapter 8, Paul revealed that there is this battle that each one of us face. It's a battle between the flesh, which desires to sin, and the spirit inside of us, which desires the things of God. And he spoke of something uh, specific, which was the battle within our mind, the way in which we think, what we set our mind upon, will ultimately dictate how we live. And so if we set our mind upon fleshly things, we're going to live a fleshly life. If we set our mind on spiritual things, we're going to live a spiritual life. And so as we pick up here in verse 12 this morning, Paul's going to share a little more about this battle between the flesh and the spirit, which ultimately will help us in this sanctification process. But then he's going to go on to share one of the most amazing privileges that you and I have been given as believers in Jesus Christ, which also will help us be set apart from sin and set apart to God. And then in verses 18 through 25, Paul's going to share with us that what is coming to us in the future, the knowledge of where we're headed should impact how we live now. It should help us in this sanctification process. And then finally, Paul's going to finish up in verses 26 and 27 with something the Holy Spirit does for us. Us to help us in this sanctification process. And we're going to save uh, verses 28 through 39 for next week because it deals with a whole uh, bunch of wonderful things as well. And so what we're going to look at this morning, this whole chapter is just very applicable, but there's some great uh, encouragement in this chapter. Uh, and hopefully as we go through it, you will be blessed and changed by it. So let's start uh, Romans 8, starting in verse 12. It says this, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul wants us to know that in this battle, the one that he was dealing with in the first chapter, uh, verses there of chapter 8, this battle between the flesh and the spirit, that we have a debt to one and not the other. We are not debtors to the flesh. We don't owe our flesh anything, but we are in debt to the spirit. The only thing that our flesh has given us is sin and consequences to sin. It's led us to sin. It's led us away from God. We don't owe our flesh anything. It hasn't brought anything good in our life. It's just been the thing that has caused us all sorts of heartache and headache. Ray Pritchard said this about not owing the flesh anything. Why don't we owe anything to the flesh? One, because we've been set free from the power of the flesh. We are no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. 
The flesh once controlled us, but now we are free. Two, because the flesh does us no good. Consider the ministry of the flesh. It tempts us to do evil. It pulls us away from God. It wars continually against the Holy Spirit. You don't have to live in the flesh anymore because you don't owe your flesh anything. This is such an important thing to understand, especially in the way in which we live, because the reality is so often we live in such a way that you would think we do feel like we owe our flesh something. Why? Because we keep indulging it. We keep feeding it. We keep giving to it. And so you think, well, I must owe you something. That's why I keep giving you all these things that you want, when the reality is we don't owe our flesh anything. But there is someone that we do owe. We owe God everything. And Paul wants us to recognize that as we're living the Christian life. Recognize you don't owe your flesh and shouldn't be giving in to your flesh, but you do owe God. And because you owe God, that should change our perspective and what we're seeking to live for. We should be living for the Spirit. Instead of indulging our flesh, the Bible says there's something else that we should do to it, which is a struggle for us. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 says, And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We shouldn't be feeding the flesh. We shouldn't be indulging the flesh. Instead, the Bible says, here's what to do with your flesh. Crucify it. Kill it. Quit giving into it. Quit feeding it. That's not what we should do now that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And this is hard for us because we're tempted. Our flesh wants things and we want to feed it and we like it and we indulge in it and, and we need to crucify it. We need to end that behavior. Now, one of the best ways to overcome our flesh, one of the best ways to not give into it is to give into your spirit, to feed your spirit. This is why Paul says in verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, one of the best ways to overcome your flesh is just live by the spirit. One of the best ways to stop feeding your flesh is to start feeding your spirit. You know, when I was a kid, my mom would always say, you can't have junk food before dinner. Why? Because it spoils your appetite. Well, if I don't eat any junk food, now I'm ready for the nutritious meal that she makes for me. But in the same way with our flesh and our spirit, if we're constantly feeding ourselves junk stuff, which is the flesh, then we're not hungry for the things of the spirit. But when we feed ourselves the things of the spirit and we're full, then there's not really that desire as much for the things of the flesh anymore because I've already filled myself with what is good and what is beneficial to me. Paul describes it in a very similar way in Galatians 5.16. He says, I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You know, because that's our thing. Oh, I don't want to fulfill my, uh, the lust of my flesh anymore, so what do I do? Well, Paul says, actually, the best thing to do is not to focus so much on, all right, today I'm not going to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Today I'm not going to fulfill the lust of the flesh. The best thing to do is to focus on actually walking in the Spirit. Because if we start walking in the Spirit, the natural byproduct of that is we will stop fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Because if you're walking in the Spirit, guess what? You're not going to be fulfilling the lust of the flesh. They don't go hand in hand. You can't do both at the same time. And so Paul's saying, hey, pursue walking in the Spirit. Pursue reliance on the Spirit. Pursue living for the Spirit of God. And the byproduct of that is you're going to start seeing a, a drastic change in how often you seek to indulge your flesh. So feed the Spirit instead of feeding 
your flesh. You know, this is what fasting is really all about. You know, fasting is a denying of the flesh and at the same time feeding the spirit. Some people look at fasting as just denying of the flesh, and when it comes to food, that's really just a diet. You know, it's not just a denial of the flesh, it's also at the same time, feed your spirit. That's the most important part of it. And so I want to give you a challenge for this week. Just take something, whether it's one meal, whether it's one TV show, whether it's an hour on social media, I don't care what it is that you fast from, but something that you normally feed your flesh, take a moment to fast from that, And at the same time, feed your spirit. Take some time to pray. Take some time to read the word. Take some time to worship the Lord. And watch what happens as you deny your flesh and at the same time feed your spirit. And I encourage you to start getting into the habit of doing that regularly because it's something that will definitely help your spiritual growth in the Lord. So Paul wants us to understand here in verses 12 and 13, we're not debtors to our flesh. We don't owe our flesh anything. But we do owe God everything. Which brings us to the first thing I want you to take note of this morning. Since we owe God everything, live for the Spirit, which will help you put to death the flesh. If you want to be victorious in the battle between your flesh and your spirit, daily feed your spirit. Daily rely upon the Spirit of God in your life. Daily follow what He leads you to do. Well, now Paul's going to share with us one of the greatest privileges that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. Verses 14 through 17 says this. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. In these verses, Paul shares with us some wonderful news about what happens when we place our faith in Jesus Christ When we do that, we get a very privileged relationship. God adopts us into his family. He makes us his children, and we become the children of God who have a heavenly father. Now, adoption back in the time of uh, Paul's writing there in Rome as he's writing to the Romans was a little different than adoption today. There's some similarities, but there's also some differences. And so as Paul is writing to the Romans and he's using this illustration of adoption, the, the you know, typical thoughts of the day would have been what they would have brought to this. And so I want to share with you, you know, kind of what adoption looked like at Rome at that time. Under Roman law, Fathers had complete control and complete power over each child that they had, and that control lasted as long as that parent was alive. So it didn't matter if you were in your 40s or 50s, if your parent was still alive, they were still in control. They were still the ones who had possession and control and power over you. Now, because a father had so much power and control over his child, it made adoption into another family a more difficult and more serious step. You see, in adoption, a person had to pass from one father who had absolute control, absolute power, to another father who then would take the absolute control and power from the other one. The adoption ceremony was carried out in the presence of seven witnesses, And the reason for this was if your new adopted father were to die, 
Then there would be no dispute. If there was, they would have seven witnesses say, no, this person is an heir. This person has been adopted. This person is a rightful heir to this new family. So once a child was adopted, four main things happened in the Roman adoption. First, the adopted person lost all rights in his old family and gained all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family. So there's a drastic change from one family to another. Second, the adopted person then became an heir to his new father's estate. Even if other children were born afterwards who were blood children that did not negate the heir now of this adopted child, he got the inheritance that he deserved. Three, the old life of the adopted person was completely wiped out. All their debts were canceled. They were regarded as a completely new person entering a new life, and their past life was left in the past. Fourth, in the eyes of the law, the adopted person was absolutely the son of their new father. Legally, there was no difference between the adopted son and the son by blood. So when Paul tells us that God adopted us, this would have been what he was referring to. And I love this because, you know, we see the fact that we used to be under the possession, under the power of something different. As we've looked at in Romans, we were under the possession and power of sin, our own flesh. But now we come. We receive Jesus, and God adopts us into his family. Now the possession and control, it's changed. It's now under God. It's no longer under sin, under the law. We're now under God's control. The old life has no more rights over us. God now has the absolute right. And the the past, all the debts, all the things that are there are left there. They're wiped out because we have new life with God. But notice what Paul says in verse 15. This is one of the best parts of this adoption. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. When Paul says that the spirit of bondage again to fear, he's speaking of that old covenant relationship that was based on the law. Oh, the bondage that that brought because they couldn't keep the law. He's saying, hey, you know what? You don't have the relationship that people used to have before Jesus died on the cross. And and I want to kind of look at the differences between that. And I want you to think about all the people who had a relationship with God before Christ, and now the kind of relationship that you and I can have with God because we've accepted Christ and because of what Christ has done, and now that we are children of God. I mean, the the most um, sought-after person in the sense of a relationship with God would have been the high priest. Why? Because the high priest one time a year, got to go into the Holy of Holies, got to be in the presence of God. And what a privileged role that was for him. But of the whole nation, only one guy, one time a year, gets to go into the Holy of Holies. And so under the Old Covenant, access to God was very limited. It was very restrictive. Under the Old Covenant, there wasn't much boldness in coming to God. Instead, there was much more fear. There's a lot of fear, and there was a lot of, you know, different things of ceremonial washings and things before coming to the Lord for, you know, not wanting to have any issues with that. In the Old Covenant, it was more um, intimidating than intimate. Under the Old Covenant, they related to God more through the law and through the sacrifices instead of through a deep and intimate relationship. What Paul wants us to understand is that in Christ, we have a very different relationship with God than the people who before Christ came had. It's so much better. It's so much more rewarding. It it is a relationship of a father to a child, one that has complete access, as we're told, to come boldly to the throne of grace. 
It's one that has intimacy. It's one that is just uh, a, a, a fabulous, fabulous relationship. And that's why we're told we have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is a word that means daddy. And it's such a wonderful word, even, I think, more intimate than with father, because father can kind of be, it can be intimate as well, but it also sometimes isn't as much. But, you know, my girls call me daddy all the time, and I'm the only person that they can call daddy. No other child can call me daddy because I'm not their dad. Uh, and so the, it's this intimate relationship. They, they have this privileged title with me because I am their father. And they can come to me whenever they want, no matter what they've done, because I love them. And this is what Paul wants us to understand here. We have this new relationship. The, the Spirit of God now dwells within us. We've been adopted into God's family. We are now his children. We can call him daddy and what a wonderful privilege. We have complete access to him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. In the Old Covenant, one man, one time a year could go into the Holy of Holies. We can come into the presence of God at any time that we choose. We can come boldly. We don't have to fear. It is intimate. So Paul wants us to see the wonderful difference, what we have, what we've been blessed with. He goes on in verse 16 to say, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. As I mentioned in the Roman adoption, there were seven witnesses to declare that, hey, this really happened, and if there's any dispute, we can stand forward and say, no, this person is now adopted and in this new family. Well, God's saying, hey, you have a witness. I have a witness. And it's better than any witness here on this earth because we have the witness of the Holy Spirit. He's the witness that says, yes, you truly are adopted. And notice what we're told. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Because one of the things that we need to be confident in is we are new. We are adopted. We have a new father. We're in a new family. And all the benefits that come with that are ours. But sometimes the enemy lies to us. Sometimes we wonder if that's really true. And one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness. No, you are a child of God. Understand it, know it, be blessed by it. Live with that mindset. Paul goes on to say in verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Because we are God's children, one of the best things of all is that we are now heirs. We are joint heirs with Christ, which means the inheritance is ours. For those who are heirs, you're, you're going to get the inheritance of your father. A wealthy man and his son loved to collect rare works of art. They had everything in their collection from Picasso to Rembrandt, and they would often sit together and they would you know, just look at their art and they would discuss it and they loved it. And then the Vietnam War came and the son went off to war and he bravely fought and he died uh, saving another soldier's life. And about a month later, just before Christmas, this father who is now grieving, who lost his son, has a knock at the door, and a young man comes to the door and says, you don't know me, but I was a soldier with your son, and your son 
died to save my life, and I came to bring you something. Your son talked about how much you love art, and I am an artist myself, and I painted a portrait of your son. And so he gives it to the father, and the father was blown away by how much it looked like his son, and loved the picture, put it over the mantle. And every time someone would come to his house, they'd always want to see his art because he had such a a huge uh, display of wonderful works of art. And he would take them first to see the portrait of his son. Several months later, the father dies, and now there's going to be this great auction of his paintings, and all sorts of people come, and they're excited, and they want to see, all right, now we might be able to get a Picasso, or we might be able to get one of these Rembrandts in, in our collection, and so they come, and the auctioneer is there, and the first painting on the platform is the painting of the son, and the auctioneer says, who will start the bidding here for this son? The painting of the man's son. And the place is silent. And then finally someone says, you know, let's skip this one. We're not here for these. Let's get out the real paintings, the ones that we're wanting to have. And the auctioneer says, no, will anyone bid on this? Can one someone give me 100, 200? And no one, once again, does it. And more people are upset. And then finally a voice comes from the very back of the room. It was a longtime gardener of this family and he was poor and all he had with him was $10 and he loved the son. He said, well, I'll give you $10 for the painting. And so the auctioneer says, well, will anyone give me 20? And people now are just getting angry. Just give him the painting. Let's get on to the real good stuff. And so the auctioneer says, going once, going twice, sold. And once the painting is sold, everyone's excited. All right, now we're going to get to really bid on what we want. And the auctioneer stands and he says, the auction is now finished. People say, what are you talking about? The auction's finished. And he said, well, in the will, there was a secret stipulation that I wasn't allowed to reveal until now. Only the painting of the sun would be auctioned. And whoever got the sun got the whole estate, including all the paintings with it. You know, God gave his son 2,000 years ago to die on the cross. And much like the auctioneer, he is saying, the son, the son, who will take the son? Why? Because whoever takes the son gets everything else. And this is one of the big blessings of being a child of God is we have an inheritance because we are joint heirs with Christ. And so all that is available to Jesus is available to us because we now have received him. Greg Ogden said this, As adopted children, we can enjoy the same favor that Jesus had with the Father. We too are the apple of God's eye, the pleasure of his love, the delight of his focus. And if we didn't get all that we wanted or needed in our human fathers, we are invited even more deeply into the pleasure that the Father of heaven and earth takes in his Son and us. We have been included in the family and hear the Father say, You are my child whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Well now... We now have the father we always needed and wanted. You know, maybe sometimes when you were young, I know I did, dreamed of, I wish my parents were billionaires, so when they died, I got a real inheritance. You know, my brother and I did this a lot. We thought, you know, when my dad dies, we're going to get a bill, and some other people are going to get all this stuff. And so we thought it would be so great if our parents were billionaires and think of the inheritance that we could get. But you know what? You and I don't need to dream about an amazing inheritance because we're going to get one. We're going to get one that is far superior than anything that we could ever be given, regardless of how wealthy our parents are or were in this life. 
What God is going to give us is going to be a million times better than that. But something we need to remember is the only reason we're going to receive this inheritance is because of our relationship with Jesus and the fact that God has now made us his children. God loves you and I so much that he adopted us into his family so that he could be our heavenly father. He didn't need to do that to save us. He didn't need to do that. He could have just made us his friends. He could have just made us companions. But no, he says, no, I want something more and intimate. I want to make you my children. Which brings us to the second thing I want us to take note of this morning. God adopting us and giving us his inheritance should motivate us to live for God and want to be like God. You know, children love to imitate and be like their father. I watch this all the time with my girls, and they it's a good thing or it can be a bad thing, depending on you know how you're living and what they're imitating. But you know, hopefully if you're a good example and they're imitating it, it's a good thing. But they love to imitate. They want to be like their dad. They want to be like their father. And in the same way, that should be our heart. Now that we have a new father, there should be a desire within us that says, I want to be like my dad. I want to be more like him. I want to live like he does. I want to follow the example that he set for me. Since we owe God everything, that should be something that encourages us to be set apart from sin and set apart to God. And since God adopted us, it should help us also to be set apart from sin and set apart from God for God. But now in verses 18 through 25, Paul's going to share with us that what's coming in the future also should be something that helps, excuse me, helps us in the present to be set apart from sin and set apart to God. Notice what he says in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. One of the biggest things that causes us to struggle in this battle, we all have the battle between the flesh and the spirit, and we find days that we're victorious in that battle, and we find days that we fail in that battle. But I have found, and I'm sure you have as well, when we're suffering, it's so hard to live in the spirit. It's so much easier to live in the flesh because our flesh is suffering, and you know it's just a struggle to be victorious in that battle in the midst of suffering. We get very focused on ourselves and what we're dealing with and what we're struggling with, and we oftentimes lose sight of the more important thing that we should be living for, which is God. And so in the midst of suffering, this can be a difficult issue for us. I have found that when things are going great in life, it's a lot easier to live for God. When things are not going very well for you, it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to deny the flesh and live for the Lord when life is difficult. And I think one of the main reasons it's harder to live for God when we suffer is because we lose sight of what we should be living for. We take our eyes off of God and place it onto ourself and what we're dealing with, and that is a recipe for disaster. So here in verse 18, Paul wants us to have a proper perspective on our suffering, a perspective that sees the contrast versus what we go through in this life contrasted with what's coming, compared with what's coming. What's coming should influence what we're dealing with now. When I keep my focus on what's coming in heaven, it will help me to view my suffering presently in a different way. It will help me keep my perspective the way that it should be and hopefully help me respond to my suffering 
in a godly way. Paul says something similar to this in first, uh, 2 Corinthians 4.17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Once again, Paul is comparing, hey, look at this light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. It's as if Paul says, you know what? I want you to go ahead and take out the scale. Put your momentary afflictions on one side of the scale and the eternal weight of glory on the other side of the scale, and you're going to see what truly is heavy and what truly is light. In comparison, when you look and you see all that's coming to us, all that we're going to be given in glory, what we suffer in this life, what we deal with, even though it can be hard and difficult, is nothing in comparison. And that's why Paul uses light and weight, because one is so light in comparison to the other. A.W. Pink said this about our light afflictions. Afflictions are not light in themselves. Often they are heavy and grievous, but they are light comparatively. They are light when compared with what we really deserve. They are light when compared with the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. But perhaps their lightness is best seen by comparing them to the glory awaiting us. In comparison to heaven, in comparison to what's coming, what we go through in this life is nothing in comparison. You know, this life for believers is the worst it will ever get. It's the closest to hell we will ever be. And once we go to heaven, once glory comes, we're going to see, wow, this was nothing compared to what we are getting. What awaiting, what's awaiting us is so glorious. In the battle between the flesh and the spirit, we need to keep a proper perspective. And this can be hard. And the main reason it's hard is because when we go through suffering and we get our eyes on ourselves and what we're dealing with and what we're going through, we lose perspective. We lose what's coming. We lose what ultimately we should be living for and where we're headed. And we just get so down and sad and depressed over what we're dealing with presently. And it causes problems. It causes us to ultimately live for the flesh instead of for the Spirit. Well, we're not the only ones who suffer, and we're not the only ones who are waiting for God to bring glory to us in the future. Notice what Paul says. There's something else that's suffering and waiting. Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. The glory that God is going to be revealing to us is so great that even creation can't wait for it to happen. Creation eagerly waits to be glorified. Why? Because when man sinned, it didn't just affect mankind, it affects all of creation. All of creation has been negatively influenced by sin. We see that in the animal kingdom. We see that even in plants. Remember, part of the curse was now that weeds and all sorts of things are going to grow. All of creation have a negative effect that sin has brought upon it. And it longs 
to be glorified. Just like we long for the glorification, our new bodies going to heaven. Creation longs, verse 21 says, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. See, the Bible tells us that once all this is done, once we are in heaven, God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And that's what creation longs for. It waits for the day when things will be new, when all the effects of sin will be removed, all the problems that are here will be gone, and it's just going to be this glorious creation like in the garden. When everything was sinless, when everything was created perfect before man's sin, God's going to do it all again, create a new earth, and creation is waiting for that. And Paul uses this illustration of groaning and labor with birth pangs. When a woman is in labor and has birth pangs, that's a sign that a new baby is coming out. Well, creation is going through those birth pangs. It knows, hey, something new is coming. A new earth is coming. I can't wait for it to come when finally the effects of sin are going to be dealt with here on this earth. Verse 23, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, for we were saved to this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance." Creation isn't the only one groaning. Creation isn't the only one waiting for something new. Paul says, hey, you and I are groaning. You and I are waiting. Our bodies want something new because our bodies are living in this flesh that is sinful, that is deteriorating, that is dying. And the word of God tells us a wonderful truth that one day these bodies are going to be glorified. We're going to receive a glorified body that is not going to be tainted with sin, that's not going to have the flesh, that's going to live forever, and we're not going to have to deal with the junk that we have now. You see, the sanctification process is difficult because there's a battle. There's a spirit and there's the flesh. But one day we're going to be glorified where the flesh is completely dealt with, where sin is completely dealt with in the sense of we don't have to Deal with it anymore. We're going to be in glory with God in heaven and there will be no more sin, no more sadness, no more tears. And our bodies will have no more aches and no more pains and no more problems. And it's something that I'm sure all of us want and we're hoping for. Notice what Paul says. You and I have been given ultimately a taste of this redemption. And it's because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits, the Spirit, the Bible says, is our guarantee of our inheritance. Because the Spirit of God dwells in us, we can be confident that what God says about the future is true. That this glorified body is going to happen. That heaven is, is, is awaiting us. And so we have the first fruits to kind of, hey, this is true. This is going to happen. This is the down payment, so to speak, that God says, trust me. I've given you my spirit. He's the guarantee of what is coming. And you can have confidence in that. We have hope. But you and I, notice he says, we should be filled with this hope. But verse 24, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? 
See, hope ultimately, the word is a confident expectation of coming good. It's in something that we haven't seen yet. We haven't seen our new glorified bodies. We haven't seen heaven. We haven't seen what's coming, and that's why we hope for it. If we've already seen it, then it's no longer hope anymore. It's presently with us. We don't have to hope for it. It's ours. But we're hoping that what God says and what God promises is true and that it's coming. For example, after you open and see your new bike for Christmas, you can't say, I hope I get a new bike for Christmas. You've already seen it. It's already there. You know it's mine. I have it. I'm riding it. But when you haven't seen it yet, oh, I sure hope that it's coming. And if dad said, I'm going to get it for you and you trust him, then you can have a confident expectation that when Christmas Day comes, I'm going to open my bike and it's going to be there for me. Well, God doesn't lie. And he says, hey, glorification's coming. Heaven awaits. You're going to get a new body. We can have a confident expectation that that is coming to us and we can have hope in what we don't see. But notice what verse 25 says. But if we hope for what we do not see, which we should, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And this is the key. We shouldn't just have this expectation. Well, how are we waiting? Because it's not here yet. We're waiting for it to come, but we're told we need to eagerly wait for it with perseverance. And it's a very important word. The Greek word translated perseverance means a patient, enduring, or sustaining to remain under difficulty. You see, what this word is telling us is that, you know what, in this life, as we just looked at, we're going to suffer. We're going to have difficulty. We're going to have problems. And perseverance says, you know what? I'm willing to remain under this difficulty, this trial, this tribulation, this suffering. I'm willing to patiently endure it. I'm waiting for something that's coming. I'm waiting for the future. I know that in this life, this is as bad as it's going to get. But one day, I'm going to be with the Lord in glory. One day, I'm going to spend eternity with him. And so I'm going to patiently endure. I'm going to persevere through the difficulty in this life. In this life, we're going to suffer. We're going to have difficult times. But the question is, how are we going to respond to that? Because we have two different responses. We can either respond in the flesh or we can respond in the spirit. Which brings us to the third thing I want us to take note of. We need to see our present suffering compared to our eternal glory to help us respond in the spirit and not in the flesh. When you and I see our suffering in its proper perspective... In comparison to what's coming, it helps us to actually respond to suffering in a godly way, to respond to it in the spirit, not in the flesh. So, so far we've seen that since we owe God everything that should encourage and help us in the sanctification process to be set apart from sin, set apart to God, since God adopted us as his children, that should also help us, since we're going to receive such a wonderful glory and future that should impact the present and how we live, knowing what's coming. And now we're going to finish this morning looking at verses 26 and 27, where we revealed another thing that should help in this sanctification process of being set apart from sin and set apart to God. It says this, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The battle that each one of us have between our flesh and our spirit, it's hard. 
Being set apart from sin and set apart to God, it's hard. And one of the main reasons it's hard is because we're weak. We have weaknesses, and that's why we indulge our flesh. That's why we give into it, because there's a lot of weakness within you and me. So this is what Jesus told his disciples there in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, 41, it says, Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Why? The Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. That's our problem. We have the Spirit inside of us. Oh, He's willing. He wants us to do godly things, but our problem is our flesh is weak. And it gives in to things that we shouldn't give in to. And because of this, it becomes a problem in the battle. We are weak. But notice here in verse 26, Paul gives us a wonderful truth. Yes, our flesh is weak. Yes, we have weakness within us. But notice what he encourages us. The Spirit helps in our weakness. That brings me such encouragement when I recognize, yes, I am weak, but the Spirit of God is there to help me in my weakness, to help me overcome my weakness, to give me the strength I need to get past the weakness that's within me. But here's the problem that I've seen in my own life, and maybe you have seen as well. Unfortunately, I got pride. And my pride says, I'm not weak, I'm strong. My pride says, I can handle this even when I can't. My pride thinks more highly of myself than it should, and it doesn't want to admit the real weaknesses that I possess. And here's the issue. If you don't recognize and aren't willing to accept you're weak, you're not going to look to the Spirit of God to overcome your weakness because you think, I can do this. I can handle this. I can do this on my own. No, you can't. That's what Paul, all chapter 7 was. In my own strength, in my own efforts, I tried and I tried and I tried and I failed. And he came to the end of the chapter realizing I'm weak and I need help from something outside of myself. I need help from God himself. The Spirit of God is there. He can help with our weakness. But we have to admit we're weak and we have to seek to rely upon him to give us what we need to overcome the weakness that we have. And one of the specific ways, there's many ways that the Holy Spirit helps us. There's many ways that he deals with our weaknesses. But Paul shares one that's really uh, interesting here. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. When we're weak, one of the best things to do is to pray. But oftentimes we don't even know what to pray. We're just like, Lord, I don't have a clue. I want to pray in your will. I want to know what you're doing. And I'm just so, you know, I'm lost right now. I don't have a clue. And we're told this wonderful thing that happens, that the Spirit of God helps us by making intercession for us. He prays for us according to God's will, according to what is good for us, according to what is right for us. And what a wonderful thing, because we realize how powerful prayer is and how wonderful it is and that we know that Jesus, one of the things he does as he's there at the right hand of the Father, as he's regularly making intercession on our behalf. But now we hear that the Spirit who dwells in us is also groaning and praying for us. And this is just one way that he helps with our weaknesses, which brings us 
to the fourth thing that I want you to take note of this morning. The Holy Spirit helps us to overcome our weaknesses and prays for us so that we can overcome our sin and obey God. If you're in a place where you think, you know what, I'm just too weak to overcome this temptation that I've given into over and over again. I'm too weak to obey God. Let me tell you something. You're right. In and of yourself, you are too weak. In your flesh, you can't do it. That's a great place to be. That's a great understanding to have. Yes, I can't live for God in my own strength. I can't obey God in my own power. I am weak. Paul recognized, hey, when I'm weak, then I'm truly strong. Because when I'm weak, I recognize my need for where strength truly comes from, which is the Spirit of God. And this is what we need to understand is the good news is the Spirit of God helps us overcome our weaknesses. He will give us what we need to do what he's called us to do. So in these verses, we have four things that help us in this sanctification process, four things that help us be set apart from sin and set apart to God. First, we owe God everything. We owe our flesh absolutely nothing. Let's stop living for our flesh, recognize who we truly owe, and start living for God. Second, since God adopted us as his children and has given us an amazing inheritance, (laughs) that should be a huge motivation for us of why we want to be set apart from sin and set apart to live for our heavenly Father who's done so much for us. Third, we're going to receive an amazing, eternal glory, heaven, new bodies. That should influence the way in which we live presently. What's coming should have an influence on how we are set apart now from sin and set apart to God. But ultimately, as we've been seeing this theme through this chapter, it's the Holy Spirit. He's the one that we must rely upon because he's the one who has the power to help us overcome our weakness. And that is what ultimately is going to enable us to be set apart from sin and set apart to God.